This week on Cool Story with Brian Brady, how religion and ethics should be taught in schools. Are you common? The book about Glossier and Brady and I fighting about lip fillers and the rising problem of deep fakes and our greatest fears about them. You are listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabour. Bridie, what have you been doing this week? Well, do you remember how after our Cool Story party, I said that I didn't want to party for the rest of the year, and yeah. you were shocked? I was shocked, and I in, was also disbelieving. <laughs> Well, you shouldn't be disbelieving because I found a tweet that perfectly encapsulates my vibe at the moment and my vibe in general. And because I do that quite often, do my last party of a certain time period and just be like, I'm going Friday's version off grid. (laughs) Then the tweet is, I'll be a monk for a while, no alcohol, clean food, gym every day, then get bored of that dumbass life. Start living like an Irish Civil War village oaf, where I hang out at bars and tell strangers my various tragedies and eat fucked up sausages. Then get bored of that and go back to monk. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I'm like. My friends and Matt, so my friends and my husband call it me being normal. Which one's normal? Well, they're kind of using it in the facetiously because when I'm like in real party mode, they're like, oh, so bright. Like I get home at like 4 a.m. and Matt's like, oh, having a normal time again. (laughs) And then when I don't drink for like 21 days in a row, Matt's like, oh, yeah, just being your normal self. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to be one end or the other. And so that's my, and because that's my vibe at the moment, very, it is very wholesome. Pilates reading a lot of books, listening to a lot of podcasts. And I just wanted to briefly mention two podcasts that I've been listening to a lot lately while I'm in monk mode. <laughs> One of them is See Also, which is a podcast done by two chicks in Melbourne, uh, Brody Lancaster and Kate Jinks. It's a recommendations podcast, but also a culture one and really mainly about TV and movies and their knowledge of such a broad, broad variety of movies and TV shows I love. Like they do art house cinema in foreign languages that's like very deep and moody and I wouldn't have heard of, heard of unless I listened to them. And they also do like Real Housewives of New York. Mm. And their knowledge in both of them is so deep, so interesting. And I love listening to them every week. They're out on Saturday mornings and it goes for about an hour and it's become a bit of a Saturday ritual for me to go for a walk and listen to that podcast. Well, Saturday Saturday ritual while I'm in monk mode. I'll just say I don't know I don't know Jinx's other work, but I really like Lancaster's like freelance writing. Yes. She does really good profiles and pieces. Yeah. Profiles especially. Yeah. I love her profiles. Yeah, so she's a great writer. And the other podcast is called Changes with Annie McManus and we this was to the, the Zane yeah. one. So that's how I found it. Yeah. And she's just recently done an interview with Dolly Alderton, which is such a great interview and had Dolly talking about things that I'd never really heard her talk about. And I felt like I got a real insight into her character. And I Is think, that even possible anymore? Well, exactly. Ex- like, you know, I listened to almost every episode of The Hilo and yeah. you read her memoir and all that. But she, Annie's just a really great interviewer. As we heard with Zadie, like I feel like with the Zadie interview, we heard things about Zadie that I've never really heard her discuss before. I agree, but I wondered if it was because they seemed like they were mates and had known each other for years. And yeah. I just presumed that it was such a good interview because they were genuinely close. But- well, I think it's the structure of the podcast, which is about the times in your life that have been periods of great change for you. I realise that she sends them a lot of the questions beforehand and gets them to tell her what they're going to talk about. So there's a lot of thought that goes into the pre-interview, which can blow up in your face occasionally. But the thing is that really makes it is that she's a genuinely great interviewer where she listens to the answers and then asks another probing question and like gets even more out of someone. And Dolly at the end of the podcast actually said, I cannot believe I've told you some of the things that I've just told you. So I think it's a combination of the structure. It's very well structured and also that she's just a great interviewer. And that's kind of my favourite kind of podcast is like really deep dive interviews with people. So that's what I've been doing in monk mode. (laughs) And then you'll come out of monk mode for our Xmas extravaganza where we've that probably is the date. Yeah. That December 19 is actually probably when I'm going to come out of monk mode. Watch out for the second half of that show. 
We're all doing shots. And by we all, I mean the audience as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking like, what can we put under people's chairs is like a surprise. Imagine if we somehow just put shots under people's yeah. chairs. <laughs> and, they, and there goes like all the money that we're supposed to make that <laughs> night. We've spent on shots for everyone. <laughs> what about you? What have you been up to? Uh, well, I have a present for you. <gasps> An actual book after I was so snobby yeah. about getting... I was snobby about getting um, the bound version. Which One is... of my friends said that you were harsh. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> Last week. <laughs> I said, I don't want to read a bound version. No. Well, it's A4. It's printed out A4. I can't lie down in bed. We should say, if you're listening, we're talking about me having just given Bridie a copy of my novel in like... Proper mo. Is this yeah. one of the first printed? Yep. I'm going to sell this for two <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, as long as you split the profits with me. <laughs> oh, this is, oh, my God, it looks gorgeous. It looks even better IRL. And this that's so funny after I was so mean to you when you said you're going to get the bound copy, which is publishers do a lot for people who don't know, where they send out the book printed on just from a printer, like in A4 yeah. pages, and it's just bound up. And it's like a ream of paper. It's a ream of paper. It's super annoying to read, which is why when Bree said, you're getting it next week, and I said, I don't want I don't want the A4. <laughs> then I had FOMO because I knew other people getting yeah. them. And you've bought me in the real book. How? So it means you're... I got two copies. You got one and my husband got one. So. Oh, soon we're going to find out what one... So you, a reader who you care about got one <laughs> and a reader whose opinion you don't care about Okay, well, okay. I wanted to float this with you. Depending how busy you are, obviously, I think you should tell me what you think about it on the show next. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but, like, don't tell me before. No, I won't. Okay. Unless I come on the show and tell you, oh, I've just been busy with the boys a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, just a little swimming lesson. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah babe, Which is so it, funny yeah. because um, <laughs> that book I mentioned last week, Anana by Emily H. Wilson, which I loved, she wrote on Twitter about how excited she was that I spoke about on the podcast and in her second tweet said, yes, I did used to work with Bridie, but I know that she would never say that she liked a book that she didn't like. She never says what she doesn't mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'll surprise you with what I think. Also, And I'm going to have questions for you. Oh. Which is, so I'll come with my questions. I thought maybe we could like save me from, like, getting actually crushed by maybe just agreeing to some kind of compliment sandwich. <laughs> but I get it the feeling you cannot be corralled in this. <laughs> you're like, I'll come with what I come with, Brie. And you've just got to cop it. Yeah, I'll cop it. And then if, if you're upset, then I'm like, put on your big girl pants. It's not that bad. Some people have real problems, babe. <laughs> some people have real jobs. Some people have real problems. <laughs> real, yeah. real insight into my parenting there. You'll get over it. Well, the other thing I actually did this week was that whenever I have – so I run News and Reviews, my newsletter, obviously, and once a month I do the magazine, which is, like, huge. And I feel like I lose almost a week of my life to just putting that together every week. And in particular this week that just passed, the News and Reviews magazine had an article in there by a friend of mine called Larissa. And I wanted to read this out to you and ask you about it. So Larissa is not normally, you know, like a sort of – she's not like a – someone who publishes articles or think pieces all the time. She sort of a few months ago started volunteering for this organisation called Primary Ethics where she will go into a primary school and teach ethics to children, like secular ethics. And in her piece she wrote about that as of October this year there were 98 approved providers of special religious education in New South Wales public schools but there is only one approved provider for alternative ethics education. And it's, what? Why are you smiling? Because I, I have the funniest opinions about this. Oh, <laughs> shit. Well, I can't, like, I was, I'm, so she tells this great, she's written this great article and, like, the topics she'll cover with the kids and they all sit in a circle on plastic chairs and use the Socratic method. So, like, everyone's, no one's right or wrong and everyone's just exchanging ideas and it's more about, like, thinking things through and trying to, articulate why you feel a certain way rather than arrive at the quote-unquote correct, you know, response. And the one they did together that she tells these hilarious and adorable anecdotes about is, like, about getting even. And it's, like, so – and it's, like, the, the classroom just basically erupts when they talk about whether or not, like, birthday invitations should be – Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, no, this is it, totally – yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, and I just, like, loved this piece so, so much. And I was like, oh, I wonder if Bridie knows what – like what your boys are getting taught 
at school and like whether you would like or dislike the idea of them getting like secular ethics lessons. So secular ethics lessons, I totally support if you can get it in the school yeah. and that's great. Um, good on them. But this is like a big, is it big? I wouldn't say it's a big, but this is like a constant conversation that goes on among parents. And some parents get quite upset that in the public schools, a religious person can come in once a week and teach them scripture. They call scripture. It. Yeah. And that you can't always get someone in to speak, to teach ethics. And if you, you can opt out of scripture, and if you opt out of scripture, then if you can't get the ethics lesson, you just go sit in a library and read a book. Mm. And what well, what Larissa talked about, which blew my mind, is that you you cannot get your kid to do both. So it's this idea that like the secular ethics approach is like an alternative to religion, whereas Larissa makes, a, I think, quite a compelling argument that it could be complimentary for people who wanted their kids like you should be able to do whatever religion scripture and secular ethics yeah you have to choose between one of them and barely any kids can get the secular ethics so my funny opinion is Mm. I don't care (laughs) what do you mean you don't care people get so up in arms about kids being taught religion in public schools it's half an hour a week why do you care I also think it's good to learn about religion in schools not just Christian religion, any religion, but I think it's good to learn a lot about Christian religion because how are you supposed to get a lot of the jokes in The Simpsons and in movies and other television shows if you don't have a basic understanding of the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Truly, that's what I think. It's good. I think it's really good to know about religion. And also I think that some of the concern that comes from parents, I think, is this thought that they're going to be indoctrinated almost. Like if you're teaching them, and it is mostly Christian religion, like Christian religion once a week, then like they'll think God's real or Jesus is real or they'll get confused. Well, kids think that a lot of dumb shit is real and they <laughs> figure out that it's not. But also I think learning about religion, it isn't I think it's important to know about religion because it's all, it's just as, as it's important to know about other people's cultures and beliefs. And yeah, but that's what you would learn in like history lesson or study of society. This is scripture, which is a bit like I agree. Just, that- but I, and also I think that the reason I'm so unbothered, that I'm so deeply unbothered, is that I was raised, I think I've said this so many times, by Northern Irish Catholic mum. That's like ultra Catholic. That's like Roger Federer of being Catholic. <laughs> We're on our knees almost every weeknight doing the rosary when I'm in <gasps> primary school. Oh, my My mum goes to mass every day, like, you Holy know, shit. well, every day that she's not working. And I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to year 12 in the country where, you know, really it's taught as fact. And I think it was a really interesting experience. And you do, I felt like, a, well, a lot of my education in the those Catholic schools was about social justice and was taught in that way. It wasn't taught in this like dogmatic way. I thought it was a really interesting way to learn about it. And I think it is, I genuinely do think it's good to learn about the stories of the Bible so that you can understand a lot of things that are just obliquely referenced in books and culture. So you can understand where someone's coming from. And also part of my Catholic education in high school was like whole terms on Islam and Judaism and Buddhism as well. So, and I felt like it really it was good for me to know about those things, just like it's good for me to know about modern history. I obviously don't have a big ancient history knowledge, as we know from last <laughs> week. But I just don't think that anything bad is going to come out of being taught scripture half an hour a week at school. Yeah, but I think I disagree on the idea that like learning about religion in a sort of social and historical context is the same as like reading scripture and taking life lessons from a religious text. Those are very different things to me. And also they're being spoken to in scripture as if God is real, which I also agree with. How do you know he's not real? I don't. I just don't (laughs) trust anyone who says they do. Really? You don't know that many religious people then, do you? I guess not. Yeah. Because I think that's the other thing. I have such a deep understanding of what religion really and God and Allah as well, actually, really means in the day-to-day life of quite a few, like a lot of people. So I understand like the personal relationship with this and how important it is and how it's not an abstract thing or But I would just, like what you're describing sounds like faith to me. Yeah. Which like people 
the way I understand the word faith in particular is that people put faith in all kinds of things. Like some people have faith in like their government to protect them. Some people have faith in like their family and some people have faith in some kind of like higher being. Yeah, and if you're learning about scripture and learning about one of the things that people have faith in, that it is one of many good starting points to understanding other people and why they are the way they are. Something I do think is ironic here that has just occurred to me is that there's often so much pushback from like vocal minorities of parents that like relationships and sexuality education is the type of like values-based education that should be taught at home, not in school. And yet I feel like there would be an overlap. I think it's safe to presume there would be an overlap of people who like the fact that scripture is taught at school, not just at home, even though it's also value-laden. There might be a slight overlap, but I think that there's tons of religious people who are very happy for sex and relationships to be taught at school. Like, I think you're talking about a very, very conservative minority. Yeah, they're the ones that stimmy a lot of progress in that space in terms of trying to get holistic, age-appropriate relationships and sexuality education into schools across the country. My sex education school was so funny. My nun put a VHS tape in and then left the room. That's what I remember. We had um, this couple that travelled around that I think a lot of people my age would remember if you were in country Catholic schools and they basically just told you that if you had sex you were going to get gonorrhea and die. <laughs> Is but, there a scene from a film that's like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a quote from a film but that pretty but, – but also that I guess I'm – I think that's terrible and you shouldn't do that in schools but also I did get a lot of my sex education – at home because, you know, my mum was a midwife. Yeah. and In healthcare. Yeah, just, and my yeah. godmother was a nurse. My godmother actually told me a lot of stuff. The reason that I found out what a blowjob is, <laughs> what I fuck? was about 10 years old oh and we always had the newspaper in our house. Like my dad read the newspaper every day and the Sydney Morning Herald was in their house and the headline on the front was something about Bill Clinton <laughs> and oral sex. And I looked at the headline and I said, what's oral sex? And my godmother was there and she was a nurse, an amazing woman, Pat. She sat me down and she's like, oral sex is this. And she explained what it is. And I was like, cool. And then she ended up explaining a lot to me that day. I was like, cool, cool. Got to school the next day. Gather everyone around in the <laughs> playground. <laughs> Ten years old. And I'm like, everyone, you will not believe what the adults are doing. <laughs> But yeah, so that I'm was. Sorry, this is such a classic cool story segment. I've arrived with like a philosophical, ethical policy question, and it's just degenerated into you telling an unhinged story from your child. Yeah, and thinking that it was normal. <laughs> I don't even think it's that unhinged. I'm like, that's funny. It's funny that happened. It's common, isn't it? I actually read something this week that I wanted to ask you about, but it's not. It's definitely not philosoph- philosophical or that deep. It's just funny. Well, I think it's funny. I think that you're going to be disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> We've really tried to push each other's yeah. buttons in this week. <laughs> uh, what I love about this time of year is it's the time of year for lists to come out. Yes. And one of the first lists that's come out in November in the Times in London is the yearly lists of things that are common. Oh, <laughs> do, do they mean like common as in basic bitch? common or they mean common in the ultra classist version of the like world commoners. things that commoners do plebs things, yeah yes. things that plebs do okay and so it's um what do plebs do it's written by the well the list it's not written by but the list is made by nicholas ponsby haslam <laughs> <laughs> and he's 84 years old went to eton and his mother was a goddaughter of queen victoria <laughs> so from where I'm sitting in Australia, I don't. I'm. I'm not like deeply entrenched in the class system, but I assume that that means like he's truly posh. The journalist wrote, "If he were any less alive, he would be in a novel by Evelyn Waugh." <laughs> and every year, <laughs> that's such an original bird. <laughs> <laughs> and every year, he does a list of um, things that are common, and they described it in the article as a word for vulgarity that reeks of disdain for the poor or the rich with poor taste. Oh. 
which is like yeah, commoners or people. Or I think it also would be obviously a reference to middle class people trying to oh, yeah. act posher. Nothing worse than the uh, yeah the aspirational middle class. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And um, and in the article reference, how you know Nancy Midford in 1955 did her article of things that were you, uppercase you, and non-you. And non-you is things that are common. And I never really got this. I've heard this referenced lots of times and I never got this bit that it's common to say toilet, but it's better to say loo. Oh, I see. You don't, yeah, you don't say, yeah, because you're posh, babe. (laughs) Um, But I never got that, that what was wrong with. No, it's because of this thing, especially that I've read about in England where the super, super rich people will like have, you know, like little moth holes in their cardigans. Yeah. And, like that, because they're not trying to do that sort of pathetic reaching upper middle class. And also thing. things are handed down. Yes. Like because yeah. your your family buys such good quality stuff that you just yeah, get you it. Get yeah. Your shoes resold, but they're actually a million years old. Yeah. 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 And um you got your hair covered rug in your nineteen eighties Range Rover. Anyway, things that he has said that are common this year declared common. <laughs> Grieving <laughs> Do you know what's funny about him putting grieving on the common list this year? Is how almost dead he is. The Queen died a year ago. (laughs) So haven't we just seen, like, King Charles grieving? (sighs) And so I thought that was funny. Um, Choupette. What's that? I've probably said it wrong. Carl Lagerfeld's cat. Oh, Choupette, yeah. Choupette, I agree. Choupette is common. Yeah, that's common. Saying Moorish. Do you say Moorish? Oh, maybe, yeah. I say it all the time. Yeah. I got it from my husband. When, things, when you eat things. When you eat like, things and you want to keep Moorish. eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say that all the time. Well, I'm happy for that to be common. Are we yeah. surprised that I'm common? <laughs> <laughs> Aperol anything. Oh, yeah, that's real. Ba- well, that's yeah, also knew, basic, bitch. Yeah. So I knew you would agree with that. You would be disgusted by the concept <laughs> and then you would just be like, yeah, that is common. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm getting quizzed. I'm like on the edge of my chair. I love this one, Wimbledon, because I love that that's become (sighs) common. Like it was such an elite thing and now Yeah, you know why? Because of the upper middle class thing. Like it's such a – like people want to be seen to be at Wimbledon. Yeah, and they all line up and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ordering lobster. Oh, yeah, that's common. Which is funny because I love ordering lobster and I always feel so fancy when I order it. <laughs> Basically anything I like is common. But this is – I have a controversial opinion about seafood in Sydney in particular and Australia in general, which is that people pretend to like seafood a lot more than they actually do because it's – they think it's like a move to order seafood. But things that go on the bottom of the ocean are disgusting. So I think that people in Sydney and in Australia in general love ordering seafood because we have among the best in the world <laughs> and it's so fresh and yum. I just think that... I you- love ordering oysters. I love ordering lobster. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Well, what else is on there? So this, I'm not going to read the whole list, but this was my last I one wish that you I was going to This is tell hilarious. <laughs> Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> You're down on my level now, Bree. You oh, are common. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to my swamp. <laughs> we just, I could see, like, I think this list is actually very funny. That is very funny. Grieving and is such a curveball. I know. <laughs> I wish he explained it because it's just the list. No, explaining things is common. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but, and also this, I did not understand a word of this and I was just going to say it because it's so bizarre and it's obviously so something so posh English it's beyond the realm of me getting it all. Wales Family in Blue Festivals. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what that means? It sounds like you just gave me a riddle from a Sherlock Holmes novel. (laughs) I was like, bizarre. I'll I'll contact one of my English people on the inside, i.e. one of the posh English people I know, and ask them specifically what that means and come back to us next week. (laughs) I loved that. That was a great list. Well, the other RIP if you drink Aperol spritzes, sorry, get better. I know. Well, I've never liked them. Good, good. Because I don't like Aperol. You can do a Campari spritz. I'll give you permission. <laughs> I'm looking I down drink the camera o- right now. <laughs> I drink old fashions. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Whiskey, um, which I think is very 
cool of me, but everything that I think is cool is common. <laughs> All right. Well, the book that you have read in full and I have read what the first quarter of is Glossy, Ambition, Beauty and the Inside Story of Emily Weiss's Glossier, written by Marissa Meltzer. And for anyone who hasn't heard of the company and doesn't know what we're actually talking about at all, um, it was called one of the most disruptive brands in beauty by Forbes. So it was huge in the what years? 2010? 2010s. 2010s. So this woman, Emily Weiss, began this website, which is a pretty important part of the origin story called um, Into the Gloss, which really boomed in that sort of blog becomes editorial website time. Uh, And then off the back of that success, Emily Weiss founded her own cosmetics company called Glossy. And it really, like we talk about Millennial Pink now, this was the company that kind of made millennial pink, millennial pink. And it has a much broader reach than just being, you know, like lip balm and, and products. It was revolutionary for the way it marketed and used, used social media and created a whole community around a brand. Yeah, And her goal was to become as big as Clinique. Yes. She wanted to create like the, or even like the next Estee Lauder. That's yes. what she was trying to create. Yeah. You go first maybe because you've actually probably finished it. Yes, I finished it. I thought this was a great book for a few reasons. I loved it as an artifact of millennial culture in the noughties. A snapshot. Yeah, Yeah. and so it said a lot about like when basically when a vibe shift happens, which is when we move out of one trend into the other and don't really notice it it happening and when you look back you can see the trends. Yes. Which was, you know, the colour pink, which is the glossier pink and uh, how we were styling a lot of things and – what was cool at the time. So I love that snapshot and like always made me nostalgic for just 10 years ago. And I also thought it was great to read a business book about a woman because it is very much a business book. And I think that's rare to read an entire book about this female founded business that ended up being valued at, I think, $1.7 billion at the height of its success. It's less now, but it's still wildly popular. And uh, I loved reading about Glossier because it was a big part of my 20s. Like, it was so funny to reflect on because what you couldn't get it in Australia. They only just started shipping to Australia like last, last month. month. And did you think it was interesting how they didn't really make a big deal of it? It wasn't really on any of the Glossier Insta or it didn't seem like there was a big announcement. It was just suddenly in the press. But I think that they knew that. Australians would make a big enough deal about it and mm. it's not relevant to anyone else in their audience. Yes, yeah, so it's just part of yeah. their strategy. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I loved it as an artefact from that time and I loved its ex- explanation of cultural things. Emily Weiss, the founder who is at the heart of this book, is obviously an incredibly difficult woman to nail down. What an enigma. Yeah, and and I when I say nail down, I mean to interview personally but also nail down as in just to know what she's actually like. Like I think the writer did a great job. It's a very good piece of journalism. But at the end of it, I still thought you still don't really know what Emily likes, dislikes or really thinks of herself or or thinks of the business. But I do still think that the book was worth reading and writing. I actually listened to it on audiobook mm. on the Spotify free 15 hours a month if you're a premium, which I think, which we've discussed previously, whether it's good or bad. I really liked the audiobook. I thought it was read really well. And the woman who read it does imitations of people amazingly. Like when oh. she does Emily Weiss's voice, it does sound exactly like Emily Weiss. Oh, wow. But, and also I liked it for, well, how Glossier became so successful, which is, you know, so much to do with you know, good ideas, hard work, and I really think mostly luck Ooh. in these instances. Just I wondered do, what you would think Just about doing that. it at the right time. And I actually think that there's a lot of parallels between Glossier and GoTo oh, yeah. in Australia, like Emily Weiss and Zoe Foster-Blake. I think that – Did you invest in Glossier and then lose all your money? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't invested in Glossier and lost all my money. That was just GoTo. <laughs> Have I said that before on the podcast? <laughs> that, Probably. <laughs> um, no, I don't think that I've ex- – I'll just explain briefly that when um, <laughs> that when GoTo sold a big stake to BWX, I was trying to become financially literate <laughs> and look after my money. And um, my friend who's very, very good with finances had given me good advice on my super and what else – and something else to invest in, which I had done. And then I'd become so confident and everything was going well. I invested in something without talking to him, which was 
BWX because it bought GoTo. And I thought, I use this, I like it. They're going to come out with a sunscreen. You know, Zoe, everything Zoe Foster Blake touches turns to gold. Yeah, everything she touches turns to gold for her. <laughs> I put two grand in this investment. Today, I haven't checked it lately because I hate looking at it, but last time I checked, that $2,000 was worth 90 because <laughs> BWX essentially went bust just after they bought GoTo. Anyway, we don't have to talk about my dumb financial decisions. Could have had some great parties with that two grand. Yeah. Could have bought a great handbag, but instead I'm trying to be financially responsible and that's what happens. But to go, sorry, I interrupted with a funny story yeah. about you. <laughs> well, I thought, yeah, so I think that it's also interesting for Australian readers because I think you can see the parallels between Zoe and Emily, which is being smart, being hardworking, having an idea and being quite zeitgeisty, but also just so much being right time, right place mm. and like launching this thing before the market became completely saturated with every second person on Instagram trying to do the same thing. A decent part of it is Emily and Zoe are like among the first to really like harness the power of Instagram followings and turn it into money or and you know and turn it into a business, which you know every second person is trying to do that today and a lot are failing, but they were really at the vanguard of that. I think there's something specific here too that I that this book helped me articulate, which is that a lot of people can turn their personal Instagram account into a big moneymaker and become themselves the business. But what Weiss was able to do and what Zoe Foster Blake was able to do was to turn their name and their sort of personal brand into an actual brand that people then bought into. Does that make sense? Because no, that shift is extremely difficult because what people love is another person. What people respond to is like, a person's face and a person's story. And I found it fascinating how much Emily Weiss was able to protect her privacy and give very little of herself away while building a brand and a social media presence that people genuinely felt connected to and bought into. Yeah. it's And there are a lot of similarities, even in the way that they did marketing copy. When they talk about the marketing copy in this, copy in this book, it's so simple, but so clever. They had a rule at Glossier that was you had to say it out loud, your marketing copy. So they wouldn't put anything in their marketing copy that you wouldn't say out loud. So they wouldn't be those like shampoo, like a good example is like shampoo commercials where it's like for luxurious locks. And you're like, you would never actually talk that way. So they had much more conversational way. And Zoe's a little bit the same in that it's not necessarily how you talk, but she made the copy on go-to packaging, very conversational and very funny, which hadn't really been done before. I kind of hate it now, to be honest. And I see it leaking into so many other brands where they're all these silly puns about everything. But, you know, it was smart of them to do. And you're right, pulling off turning your personal brand into an actual business without your name is very smart but very difficult to pull off. And I remember when Zoe launched go-to because I followed her from way back when. And when she launched it, I remember saying to a friend, God, that's so silly that she isn't calling it Zoe Foster Blake, Mm -hmm. that she's calling it something different. But no, it's really smart because if the business lifts off the ground, then you want your customers to be people who have never heard of you. Because if your customers are only people who have heard of you, then you're limiting your customer base. Yeah, it also just like means that you can never sell it, really. Yeah, or like exactly. If you sell it, then you're like actually selling your name and that's way more sort of frightening and strange. And later on in the book, which you're not up to yet, there's some very interesting parts about uh, that time when a lot of female founders fell from grace. Yeah, which the, girl, is like the girl boss. The girl boss era. And there's a really good analysis form. of like girl boss era and use of that word and where it all came from and then the – inverted commas, fall of the girl boss as well, and how basically Emily did mostly dodge that. And what's interesting also in that is, so she dodged the fall of the girl boss when a lot of other people like Audrey Gelman and Leandra Medine Medine, losing face and essentially losing their businesses at the same time. But it also goes into Emily, like the challenges and the difficulties and maybe, she doesn't say this, the writer, but maybe the stupidity of Emily Weiss being the CEO for so long. Mm, See, I find that really interesting. And what the limits of that were and what that meant for the company and how they were missed opportunities because she was the CEO for too long. Because I'm really interested in like, quote unquote, genius narratives. And I like reading about these people who, who have 
either like climbed to the top of something themselves or whose society has very much sort of put on a pedestal and like think that they're somehow like savants. And like from reading so many books about that, what I've learned, which I find really interesting, is that it often takes a very different type of person to grow and like ex- like get a business off the ground compared to the person who then like maintains it and takes it to the next level. Yeah, and like, scales it. And scales it, yeah. yeah. And so that's definitely in the book. So it's an interesting business read. Did you ever use Glossier? Never, not once. Really? But How I found- come it missed you? Well, I've just never been... I get really frustrated, to be honest, with this, like, no makeup makeup. I knew. Do you know when I was getting ready this morning, I'm like, Bree's not going to like the no makeup makeup thing. It's fucked. Why? Why is it any more fucked than other makeup? Because you have to – it, like, raises the collective minimum standard but, like, doesn't allow you to actually – doesn't allow people to actually sort of express their individuality. It's, like, the same thing that's, like, super fucked about where we've gotten to with skincare where you have to – you are expected to, because of these collective minimum standards, put increasing amounts of time and effort and sometimes like chemicals and fucked up things on or in your face, but you're not allowed to look like you do. But how, but how is that different to other makeup brands or, you, or the way that makeup was previously marketed when basically the promise was you will be beautiful if you wear this red lipstick or this will look good on you, when red lipstick can look freaking amazing on one person and wash out the next person. Like that's also a false promise. Yeah, but this is like, so the analogy I think is with procedures. And I was at this party once with an older man who was expressing opinions about what type of quote unquote work, like facelift, boob job, whatever, that he thought was like, good or bad or tasteful or not tasteful that women should do. And he was like, oh, yeah, I think women could and should get work done, but only when you can't tell that they've gotten work done. And that's like, I just, it really kills me when there's just this increasing normalization that women in particular will fuck themselves up and not, but they're not allowed to like talk about having fucked themselves up because they're just. How have they fucked themselves up? financially and in the terms of like, and if we're talking about cosmetic procedures, they're not without risk. You think, but which, I guess there's a cosmetic procedures can be quite invasive or there are, or or do you mean, are you also talking about like filler and Botox? It's it's like, to me, this is, we're talking about the same thing and it's a sliding spectrum where you have say like a, whatever, like a full on, really like high risk invasive surgery procedure at one end and at the other end of the exact same spectrum is skincare that you put on or wash off every day. So you think it's fine to use skincare and good but not to get Botox? No, you've misunderstood. I think it's all fucked just to different but degrees. What about, but, but what about women who just like it? And it isn't part of their self-worth. It's just fun to do. Yeah, but that's And they what I like mean. how they feel and look with it. Yeah, but it, like, isn't that like the same as doing your hair or like what you put on in the morning to get dressed in the world? Exactly. And there is a difference between dressing and putting like say colour on your face in order to have fun with it and express something and what I am talking about, which is extremely insidious, where you have to put in a lot of time and effort essentially to look some version of younger, thinner or whiter and yet you don't talk about it because if you don't do that work, you feel insecure because we live in a world that makes you terrified of not looking young. In so all of my friends that get work done don't feel insecure, talk about it all the time. Well, that's and great. And think that it's just fun to do and they look great. And I think they do look great as well. But I don't think that they look exceptionally better than my friends who aren't getting work done as well, although we are in all in our 30s, so that's probably going to change over the next 15 years between telling. But I think but then it I, like- I, th- I don't think that everyone who gets a cosmetic procedure, I think there are differences. You talk about the spectrum. Yes, there are a spectrum. But I do think there's a big difference between getting filler and getting like liposuction or your tits done. Oh, well, not even – lots of people but get their you- tits done and have fun with that as well. Yeah. Like, I think I, – I guess I think that people – or I know there. you were right that there are people who do it when they can't afford it and because they're insecure. That absolutely happens. But there are also tons of women who just like it, who just like doing it. Yeah. So why not? Yeah, but like 
what you've described, I would say, is A, the exception to the rule where people are genuinely happy to chat about it and have fun with it. And also how we started talking about this, which is selling no makeup makeup, which is that you are selling a product that people apply so that they can adhere to minimum standards and then not have to act like they have spent that time and money doing that. Is that very different to telling 25-year-olds that they need full face, that you need full face of makeup, like heavy foundation, red lips at all times, like eyebrows perfectly done, is like that kind of obvious makeup, is that not like 25-year-olds don't need that? Also, most 25-year-olds can pull off the no makeup makeup look. Yeah, but why are we even 25-year-old can pull it off. Why are you even talking about 25-year-olds like they're different from 65-year-olds? Because Glossier is marketed, the no makeup makeup is marketed to people in their 20s and early 30s. Like the no makeup makeup is not being marketed to the six-year-olds. And also it's further on in the book, an interesting conundrum from Glossier, which is marketed no makeup makeup to 20-somethings who, to be blunt, just all look great with it. Like they do all look great. Like there's not really that much difference between various 25-year-olds doing no makeup makeup. And this conundrum that Glossier has is that their base is ageing and they want like retinol and heavier things like that and so they have to go into it. But I don't think that it's particularly insidious or egregious to market no makeup makeup to 25-year-olds. Like I, but also oh the, no ma- God, the no yeah. makeup makeup. I just always think that everyone looks like they're wearing makeup. One of the things that I find really funny is when you see men posting online about like a photo <laughs> in a magazine, yes. and they're like so natural. I love it when she doesn't. When women don't wear makeup, this this just goes to show you don't need to wear heaps of makeup. And then it's a photo of a woman in like foundation, bronzer, yeah. blush, lip gloss, <laughs> mascara, eyebrows filled in. Yes. Oh, yeah. Very funny. No, I just think it's all it's all cooked. And the thing that makes me the thing that bums me out is also how many quote unquote self-made sort of millionaires and like successful CEOs who are women are in very like women specific industries. Oh yeah. That's, and also, and also the stats in this yeah. about getting funding. Yeah. In America, it would work differently in Australia. But the stats in this about getting funding are insane. It's basically something like 10% of, like when you go to get investment money, what do they call it? VC. VC, venture capital. V, venture capital money. Something like 10% goes to women and something like, it's 10% or 2%. Yeah, it was low. Like 10% or 2%. And then if it's 10% for women in general, it's then 2% for people of colour. Was That was a crazy part of this book where just like 90% of venture capital funding, and we're talking billions of dollars, is all going to white men. Yeah. Yeah. I like So there's little bits like that in this book that I found really interesting as well and like trying to understand. Trying to understand how money works so that I don't throw away two grand. <laughs> I'm going to keep reading. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I, it's, um, it's well written and well researched. Yeah, it is. Last week I, I ran into a person who, let's say, works in lifestyle media and whose opinion I genuinely respect and value. And she said that it's like sometimes, because this happens, sometimes you read a book and you're like, oh, it should have just been a long feature. Yeah. But you, I'm really liking you it. You told me about that friend, a friend saying that before I started reading it. And when I read it, I thought of her because I really want to ask her what she thinks should be left out. Yeah. I don't think it's a feature. Like there's every chapter I found very interesting and focusing on like a different aspect of time and, it's not and the business. Yeah, it's, it's not, not a long, long book. But I wondered how you could fit it into a long feature. But, you know, your mate, I didn't realise she worked in lifestyle media. Maybe she just knows too much. You know those things when you read something yeah. and you have all this assume, like knowledge that you assume other people know as well? That's very So she true. probably read a lot of it and thought, I already know this, I already know this. Whereas I'm pretty obviously engaged in yeah. that kind of media and there was – Tons, every chapter had something I didn't know Mm. and I felt like I learned. I really, yeah, I did enjoy it overall. I just want to finish on though, like that thing we mentioned right at the beginning about how Weiss is such an enigma because I really enjoyed reading, like there were a couple of examples I underlined about how she obviously was really savvy but then also what you said being at the right place at the right time. I'm reading from page 41 here. 
her most astute assessment, so this is in the early stages when she was still very much, like she hadn't really found a glossier yet and she was still doing Into the Gloss, the website slash blog. Her most astute assessment was where power was coming from. She knew that magazine editors might be losing power, but that their taste and influence remained to tap into. So she covered people like Vogue's Sally Singer. And then on the next page, sorry, this is page 43, an editor once got a cold email from Weiss writing that she'd noticed that they had posted a job description similar to something she was looking for, a graphic design intern, and would she mind forwarding any resumes they didn't want? This was actually a big aspect of the book that I enjoyed hearing, how much of a hustler she was. She's such a fucking hustler. Yeah. And wasn't afraid to ask for things, which is yeah. a theme that runs through the entire book where she would just go ask someone to do something. And I really, when I started reading and realised that she came from family money and that from such a young age she was dressing in these like designer labels that she obviously, like if that's how you begin in life, you probably will never have a full conception of what it is like to actually try and earn $1,000, which you then spend on something stupid. But I was surprised. Are you looking at by, me when you say that? What are you looking what do you at mean? me? Then I earn a thousand dollars and spend it on something stupid. <laughs> no, I think anyone who actually knows what it means yeah, to no, like, no. like do a normal job, is then in and a pay position bills. and pay bills. Yeah. Is then in a position to, if they want to blow a thousand bucks on something, it's because they like. There's a sense of like enjoyment and an appreciation for the value of that money that. I don't think someone who was born with that amount of money has. Yeah, I was just teasing you. Don't oh, worry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I just want to make make that clear. But what I the point is, I was prepped to have what like low levels of either sympathy or admiration for this person. But then it became clear that she was she like went hard and hustled and hustled. And both can be true that she was born into extraordinary privilege and that she then was able to leverage that privilege by working really hard. So I don't know. It was good. I like, I'm liking it. I'll finish it. So the article that I have seen a lot of people talking about, and I've seen a lot of people talking about not just this article, but this like issue. And there are so many facets to this issue, which I sent to you, Bridie, was on the ABC. The headline was inside the world of fake ad scams, stealing the identities of Koshi and celebrities like him around the world. And it's essentially about deep fakes. So this article was specifically about how news readers, the two examples they gave were Richard Wilkins and David Koch, have their likenesses used in AI-generated images that show them in like sort of salacious settings. Like I'm looking at a screenshot here where they're like, it shows them getting arrested or that they've been like sort of talking on a show and they've said something, he regrets like telling the truth about this, blah, blah, blah. People click on these super clickbaity headlines and then once they're in the article, they get sold on a fraudulent investment scheme. But I think this article is also the latest example of the much bigger problem, which is what the hell is our society and media going to do about deepfakes getting much better and proliferated? Yeah. And deepfakes are essentially AI, yeah, AI generated images of not always real people, but because they can make up people as well. And that's a deepfake. But of real people, and it looks like it's a photograph and even a video of that person, but it's just been digitally manipulated and it's not real at all. A good example of deep fakes is um, there was a deep fake of Zelensky going around Facebook and it was a video of him telling Ukrainians to put down their arms. Oof. So that's a very big example of how deep fakes can be used. And there's actually been a lot of um, deep fakes already used in the Israel-Gaza war. Yes. Yeah. I have, By yeah. both sides. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also I think what a lot of women in particular are becoming increasingly unfortunately aware of is the potential for even if they have never sent anyone like a nude – that what we would what we used to refer to as revenge porn or the non-consensual sharing of intimate images, even if you have never given someone voluntarily your intimate images, they can create a deep fake of nudes, either still images or videos of you and share them. And it has like a similar, obviously devastating effect. Terrifying. What do you, I mean, you work in a news media organization. Are there conversations happening about what like how to deal with this? Oh, all the time. But And I think any credible news organisation is working with how to deal with it. The thing about a, a lot of deep fakes is it's, oh, I don't want to say easy. It's not easy, but you can 
verify videos and find out if they're real or not if they're and there are different there are ways that you can do that on the technical side by having like whatever nerds work in your office <laughs> who are amazing <laughs> you know can look through like the way a video is done and figure yeah, out if, it, if, can, if it's a, yeah the footprint yeah. of it and figure out if it's fake the other way is good old-fashioned journalism and we've had to do this online for a very long time anyway even before deep fakes like you see tweets go out about saying something has happened. You can't just go off the tweet. Well, credible news organisations wouldn't just go off the tweet. You've got to make the calls and make sure it's real. So the extreme example of Zelensky, you know, if you saw that video in a newsroom, you wouldn't just say, take that as your primary source and say Zelensky's now telling Ukrainians to put down their arms. You get in touch with who your contacts are in Ukraine, who his spokespeople are. You ask them, is this real? And, and ask for a statement. Or... Better even is to actually physically be at the press conference or physically be at places and report on the news that's happening. But it presents like so many issues and so many ethical quandaries. But And I think you can verify them and there is a way to sift through it and work out what's real and what's not. Those are issues for the news organisations to face. But what I think is a bigger issue is people see it posted on Facebook and just think it's real. Yes, that's what and, I'm saying. And that's what the difficult thing is. Like you can put the truth on your news website. You can verify everything, which most news outlets are doing, and you can you know present the facts in a fair way as possible. And or, and you can even put out articles saying this is fake. Zelensky did not say that. A spokesman for Zelensky said, you know, blah, blah, mm. this is fake. But – the people who read that will believe it, but there's a lot of people who see the, that deep fake video who aren't going to read your article. And then further to that, there's a lot of people who will see some of these deep fakes and just think that's what's reported in news organisations is a lie yeah. because of the erosion of trust in press. So that's the other issue that we're really grappling with as journalists and anyone working in news organisations. It's not just verifying it, figuring out what's real you know, steps before you publish something on your website. It's how do we get more people to trust us again? Mm, yeah. What I liked about this ABC article was that they talked about how Australia's competition watchdog, the ACCC, has taken meta to court over these like deep faked ads because they're trying to get the platforms to be held to some degree accountable for how much they like proliferate on the platforms. Because it's that thing you and I are talking about where it's like, well, if an article comes out in an actual news source, they can verify it. But people don't go that far. They see the screenshot or they see the even a GIF or just like a snippet well, of they a video see, and they you, believe it. Well, or they see someone that they their friend share it and they trust <sighs> that friend sharing it over you know, what the ABC has reported, which is such, that is the real core problem in all this. But the other side, if I'm not to be Pollyanna, but when I was thinking about deep fakes and especially watching how they've been used over the past month mm. by Israel and Hamas, I've been thinking a lot about how good younger people are at media literacy. Yes. Yeah, so and I've better. seen a lot of, and even in Taylor Swift fandoms, I see this a lot, how much more online and media literate 20-somethings are than maybe older people because they're aware deep fakes exist. They look for how it... Yeah, whether the faces are at the right angle. Yeah, it's just and, and much they, more intuitive. And they, they question, like when they see things post online, they're more inclined to question, is this real? Mm. Where I think some people who didn't grow up as digital natives just think what they see online is like all of it's real. Where I do feel like not everyone and not to make too broader generalisations, but I do feel like there is, I can see a lot of younger people questioning, not taking everything that they see and also doing, they get into these little swarms and I've seen this done for propaganda in the war and I've also seen this done in the Taylor Swift fandom where people get into little groups together and investigate together and go further to say like, is this real? Where would this photo have been taken? What's in the background? And 21st that, century Nancy Drew again. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But it is what hardens me in these conversations which are genuinely scary and um, and we do need to be hypervigilant and we do need to figure out how we all handle this and how we educate people on them. But it is the the one aspect that gives me hope is I do see also a lot of media literacy online and people calling out things that are fake almost immediately. Mm. The final thing I wanted to say about this is to use this opportunity to tell anyone listening that if somebody creates a deep fake of you that is like 
pornographic in nature and shares it without your consent, that is illegal and you should and could go to the cops. It is like one of my worst fears that happening. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, because, okay, we're just agreeing for the last time on the show. But you disagree. Oh, I just like, it, it's funny. So when I was reading this, I was thinking like you and I have both been on TV a lot. And like one of the reasons it's easy to make deep fakes of these news anchors is because there is just so much, like there's just such a huge database of footage of these people and their faces at different angles and their faces in with different expressions. And like the more footage there is of you on the internet, the easier it is to make more and more compelling deep fakes. And so it has very much occurred to me, not for the first time lately, I've been thinking about it for years, that it would be very easy to make pornographic or somehow defamatory deep fakes of me. And just that I've made peace with that. Yeah, I... No, it's one of my worst fears online because I know that I could fix it and I know there are things that I could do, but I also just know how humiliating it would be for a while before you could come to terms with it. And also, have you had images of yourself photoshopped yet? Not that I'm aware of. So that it did. Oh. It already happened to me um, oh, when I was in my 20s a few years ago. So I think I already, I do know, no matter how much you intellect, so I do intellectualise it a bit, being like, I would know it's fake. It would be easy to prove it's fake. You know, a lot of people would know it's fake, but I also just know the feeling in your chest of seeing, and this was photoshopped, like it was easily yeah. seen, And but the feeling you get in your chest when you see that online and it is awful to think about it being shared around and, you know, people you love and respect, even if they know it's fake, seeing mm. it as well. Yeah, and there is just an emotional reaction I know that happens and then you would get on with your life. But My, I dread that emotional reaction. Yeah. When you say it, it makes me realise and maybe I was flippant about it. You're like not flippant. I, I think that I I think I would feel the same way because you you know, like we're confident and comfortable in ourselves. But also I feel like at my, I sort of feel like it's just a matter of time until something like that happens to me. But what I was more, what I'm more afraid of is that I will be like photoshopped into a video where I'm like saying something really racist, like or that, yeah. Like that's what I'm more I because I think it would be I personally consider it more defamatory to have a clip of me saying something hateful than it would be to have a clip of me. Actually, I would think that's worse as well. Yeah, getting Thanks for putting another fear into Sorry. my head. <laughs> okay. I'd only thought about the revenge porn angle. No, I was really thinking like if because I have had people who've like stalked me and and behaved in what I consider to be demonstrably unethical ways about my online presence and things. I was like what would I do if I was really trying to take someone down? And it would be that. It would be create a deep fake of them saying hateful things. Well, maybe your haters aren't as evil as you. <laughs> we can maybe they don't have a team of nerds yeah. at their work <laughs> to, get... <laughs> to figure it out. What are you doing this week? I'm going on a Latino harbour cruise. With I'm all... sorry, what? <laughs> with my mother and all of my siblings. None of whom are Latino? No. <laughs> No. Okay, what if, what's the missing component? <laughs> it's, 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 can you, I can't wait for the people watching on this cruise, by the way. And I think it's going to be so fun to do with my family. It's my mum's birthday. And so we've done, we've organised this whole weekend of fun things and all of mum's children are going to be together and most of her grandchildren. And so we're doing like family photo shoot in Sydney and we wanted to take, you know, all of my family live outside of Sydney. And so what's a really fun Sydney thing to do, Harbour Cruise. Yes. Most of them only go for two and a half hours though and a lot of them are just drinks and two and a half hours and I didn't want to do something that felt so rushed. And so the cruise I found that served dinner and went until a like decent time, 11.30, was a Latino Harbour Cruise. <laughs> it's, it's just the one that I could find. So I, And my mum is like a very fun person. Like she wouldn't – she's going to enjoy this so much and yeah. she, she wouldn't want to go on a cruise that's just like – all retirees enjoying the sunset and you have one drink and then get off. Mm. Not that she's a big drinker. She won't drink that much. But she will want there to be music and she'll want there to be dancing and she'll want there to be, like, proper time spent. Love it. So that's what I'm going to be doing. I cannot wait to report back next week on how it went, who I saw, what I witnessed. Sick. Uh, well, I'm seeing the latest STC Sydney Theatre Company play called Oil. It's opening oh. night. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. 
I've seen so much around about that. Well, I invited you and... <laughs> I know, but you always invite me on weeknights. Yeah, well, that's when the opening nights are. Yeah, because, and yeah. it's really hard for me to do weeknights. As I've said previously, every Thursday is I'm at swimming lessons and that's usually an opening night, but also just with um, the shift work, me and my husband work, I have to look after my children a lot on weeknights. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next week when you can trash my novel to my face <laughs> as we're being recorded. I'm not going to read it in the next week. You have to okay. give me a fortnight. All right, you can have a fortnight. <laughs> I've got to finish another novel first. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. We record on Gadigal land, and our producer is Sam Devonport. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Bridie. We love to hear from you, and we also love it when you rate us and leave us a review, and we ultra, ultra love it when you tell your friends about us. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Want to hear our cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts.